0: Coming up on this episode of Harmless.
1: What happens when there's a part of you that you can't share? Let's say you find yourself with an attraction to underage children, prepubescent children. You find yourself being attracted to time. Now, you can't go to your buddy at work at the water cooler and say, did you see that four-year-old over there? Wasn't she attractive? No one thinks about the jurors that we expose to this stuff. We are effing up these regular, innocent people who have nothing to do with this world and have never had anything to do with this world, and we're forcing them, compelling them, to participate and, and be exposed to it. I think a person can go through a homicide trial and then go live their life trauma-free after that. I'm not sure a person can go through a sexual exploitation of a minor trial and live their life the same way after that.
0: Welcome to part two of this incredibly compelling interview with my good friend, the Honorable Brad Ostrowski. In the second part of this interview, Judge Ostrowski really digs down deep into the mental health ramifications on not only people investigating and prosecuting these crimes, but people that are involved in just a cursory manner, like court staff and jurors. And Judge Ostrowski shares his incredibly insightful perspective on the actual material and how caustic it can be, not just to those investigating it, but most importantly, to the victims themselves. So without further ado, I give you, my friend, the Honorable Judge Brad Ostrowski.
1: I haven't thought about this before. So I'm just saying this now out loud for the first time, but I think it has to be that it is so traumatic to see it that your brain retains it. Again, I don't have any scientific data or basis to rely upon. But why is it that of all the cases... Of all the cases I handled myself, sexual assault cases, child cases, etc., I may have forgotten some, but these I haven't. There's a
0: phenomenon that was discussed. It's a scientific term called a flagpost memory. Like, you remember where you were when the Twin Towers went down. Our parents remember where JFK was. Other people remember when Taylor Swift's album came out. I know you do. In your life, you've had, you have several flagpost memories, but this... Because it was like, like it's, it was so intense emotionally or what, it shocked your conscious so much right. that you, categor, you put it in your mind, like you said. But this is every file. It's everything's a flag post
1: imi- uh, 100%. memory.
0: Everything's a flag post memory.
1: And, you know, I'm going to get a little TMI here. But for personal reasons, have done some EMDR therapy. And the key to EMDR therapy is you have to go on a moment. You pick a moment and then they do different things, whether it's pulse paddles or eye movement or sound or whatever. And then they either talk you through it or your mind just goes through it and you're processing it, and you're trying to develop new pathways, if you will, to that trauma event. Right. So, thinking about it, periodic EMDR may be something that's part of the protocol to help detectives. Because it was successful with you in this area. Not me. It's a, it's a successful period with people that they have a different relationship with that event. So maybe you'd have a different relationship with seeing these images if you went through AMBR. I don't know. Someone should put some money into that and study it. I'm not sure. Question, though, do you
0: think that should be a mandatory thing that they go through it or that they learn that it's available and what it can do?
1: That's a difficult question because at what point does a department become overly paternalistic and eliminate someone's, free will. What I mean by that is we know that this is going to mess you up. We know that it's going to be traumatic to you. So because of that, we've developed a protocol and you have to go in it to stay in it because if you, it's almost preventative and palliative at the same time. So I don't know, but number one, up front, you can't tell people no. Now I'm not saying that. All right, now we're going to do some exposure therapy. Yeah. We're going to show you a thousand images and you'll become desensitized to it. And then you can do the job, but you have to understand it. You have to be tools and it has to be acknowledged and talked about. Not one person ever told me either before I agreed to handle these cases or while I was handling these cases, Hey, let's take a time out and stop and think about your mental health and the impact that seeing these is going to have on you and your mental health and your personal life, et cetera. Why do you think that was? Because at that time, we were in a rub some dirt on it. People that were born in the late 60s, 70s, let's say, like us, we grew up in the suck it up, rub some dirt on it, tough luck, mental health is weakness, therapy is weakness.
0: Mental illness is weakness,
1: yeah. You go to a shrink not a therapist. You go to get your head shrunk. You go to all these derogatory terms and names. So you're not going to do it because I'm a dude. I'm a tough guy. Plus, when you're in the world of law enforcement, it's a very alpha male type place anyway. And so to get along and to fit in, you can't show any weakness. That's a fact. Because you get made fun of, picked on, yes. whatever. And some of that is positive coping and and, and good fun. But some of it also is horrible and destructive so I think that's what it is and we didn't know or recognize it and because vicarious trauma second trauma those weren't if those words existed at that time they certainly weren't known to the, to us I never heard of it I'd
0: never heard of those terms until the shift program was born I had left being an investigator in 2000 I'd been there for four years and I left partially for a mental health break because I had a physical reaction to what I was looking at, a physical manifestation of the stress, and it terrified me, and I left. And when I came back to be a computer forensic examiner, that's when we heard of the shift program. And it was, so I did six years. And the first ICAC task force was in 1998, I believe, back east. There were a couple ones that came out earlier than Arizona. Back then, there was no thought. Now, do you think it was... It clearly wasn't malicious on the part of the department. It clearly wasn't, it clearly wasn't like, oh, we're, these, these. that was not the point. But do you think they were unprepared for the amount of material?
1: Yes. I think when it started out, it was, isn't this unique? You have a couple people handling these cases, and all right, cool. No one thought that it would blow up because. No one appreciated what technology do. Because we were on the precipice of beginning the wave of technology, no one understood the ramifications of the technology. You have to understand, when I started handling these cases, the way the detectives would get a hold of me was to page me. So that's the technology that was at the time. And I thought I was BMOC, big man on campus when I got my first page. So we didn't think about the ramifications of internet, global communications, global access, global access, the sharing of data. I always said this in my trainings when I did sexual exploitation of a minor cases, going back to 99, when I started training people. I said, if a person is a pedophile or has those thoughts or urges, or attractions, or whatever you want to call them. Now, in human experience, is human experience even meaningful if you don't share it with someone, right? When something exciting happens to you, what do you do? Tell someone really close to you. Something bad happens, what do you do? Same thing. So the human experience is all about sharing. It's not about doing things alone in a dark corner. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, contrary to our innate human nature, which is it's human nature to interact with other humans. We're social creatures. Exactly. Now, what happens when there's a part of you that you can't share? Let's say you find yourself with an attraction to underage children, prepubescent children. You find yourself being attracted to time. Now, you can't go to your buddy at work at the water cooler and say, hey, did you see that four-year-old over there? Wasn't she attractive? You would go to the water cooler and say, hey, did you see that new, at the time trying to think who was popular, I do know, Vanessa Williams video? And <laughs> Didn't she look hot in that video? And you share that. You can't do that as someone that has these thoughts. So pre-internet, yeah. pre-technology, you knew not to share them with people. You knew not to talk about it. Because you couldn't, because if you said anything to somebody, you would get punched out or ostracized or investigated or or what have you. So you couldn't do it. And then you also knew that you couldn't go explore it, so to speak. Now the internet comes. You have those proclivities and now you're online. And now, wait, there are chat rooms of people like me. There are groups. Now I'm anonymous. Now it's not talking to the guy at the water cooler who knows that your name is Eric. Now you're whatever online persona you have. Now I'm talking to other people. and I was like, wait a second. I'm not alone. I'm normal. Or I have this, and maybe it's not mainstream, but there's a gajillion other people out there who are like me. Now I'm part of a community. Now I can share my interest." with others now it's okay now instead of having my feelings suppressed and maybe never acted on now it's okay now there's others now other people are encouraging me now i feel emboldened by it and there's a lot of parallels between this and i think the modern rise of anti-semitism but a separate issue because social media others wait it's okay for me to do this now yeah in this Now it's okay to be an anti-Semite because we have so many in this community, the online community. Now it's okay to be a child molester or it's okay to be a pedophile. So now I can get images now. Instant access. Instant access. So now not only am I getting images, I'm doing something with it. Whereas before I didn't do anything with it. Now the images are spurring me on and now maybe the images aren't enough now it's going to spur me. And that's where technology, I would say, has taken the closet, if you will, pedophile to being a closet pedophile and maybe living that person's entire life, never acting on it, never doing anything to being a hands-on offender. And that's the danger of technology. We have, I would say, more hands-on offenses. We have more exploitation Because there's other people in the community. So now there's more demand. Now other people in the community talk to each other. And when there's other people in the community, you're not alone. You're having this human experience. And now it just exponentially gets worse. Just to clarify, we're talking about
0: a global community and relatively instant access to not only a global community, but a global supply of sexual exploitation material. hundred
1: percent. Because now, and that's an excellent point. Because if you were a pedophile, pre-computer, and you wanted to do something, you would have have to have access to a child to abuse. Maybe you had access. Maybe you didn't have access. Now, not only do you have access, you have worldwide access to children. Right. And you have worldwide access to kids that were abused decades ago. Because, and maybe this is a little off topic, but... No. The Go reason ahead. why I tried to stress to that judge who didn't get it, to that attorney who didn't get it, to that person who didn't get it, to that legislator who didn't get it when we're talking about this stuff, to that other law enforcement, other prosecutor who didn't get it, is this. Imagine having the worst day of your life, the worst thing to ever happen to you, preserved for all time for all to share. Now, I think kids today or people today can appreciate that because of TikTok, et cetera. Back when I was handling these cases, we didn't have those things. But now- We didn't have those uh, thoughts. We didn't even consider it. Right. Now, I think people can relate to it because now you, I don't know, you have some animals. If you're feeding your animals and someone's taking a video of you feeding your animals and you trip and you land face first into a pile of goat- poop that's a very embarrassing day for you but you know what if someone videotaped it now it's on there forever and how does that make you feel and that's just you falling face first into poop which is something you probably would do independently on your own yes just for fun
0: no no we if you go to a bar or you're waiting to get your car washed they have video montages of people the worst day and people
1: eat it up they love it but now this is in private yes The worst day of your life was being molested by this person in private, and now there's a picture of it, so you don't know. Not only is
0: there a picture of it, but it is out there. And And to never be deleted ever from the Internet.
1: And less people think, these are pictures, what's so harm? We don't even know these kids, whatever. Not all, but a number of the kids in the pictures that we have seen over and over again have been identified. Yes. And in talking to them, they have said, I don't like going outside, I don't like going in public, I don't like doing things, because if I walk around, I don't know which one of the people that I'm walking around encountering has seen that picture.
0: So what I've heard as well is that I've heard that the victims say, when I make eye contact with somebody and there's a glimmer of recognition, their first thought is, do they recognize me from the worst day of
1: my life? So to those people who say, what's the big deal, this is just images, do some research in terms of the victims. Because again, I handled, I don't know how many sex crimes cases. and I read, I don't know how many police reports about horrible things being done to children. And I've talked to children about horrible things being done to them. And I've heard children talk about horrible things being done to them. What sticks out to me most is the picture of it being done. You're witnessing
0: it happening. You're not being told It's not secondary information now, it's firsthand.
1: There's a difference between reading about or hearing about what happened on October 7th in Israel and seeing it. And they're showing images of what happened to leaders, politicians, etc. to be like, dude, this is why. And that's going to stick in these people's minds forever. And those people are going to have to deal with the trauma of seeing that. I'm a judge now, so I have to be objective on things. Absolutely, But I don't think there's any, any doubt on the harm of this. Again, like I said, you can have a good faith discussion about are our sentencing laws. Okay. Amend them. You want to talk about that? Okay. You have a good faith discussion about that because you can have a discussion about where they fit into this. And when the laws were passed, this wasn't known. So was this thought about when we had those sentencing laws? Because we didn't. So you can have a good faith discussion about that. But to think this is no big
0: deal. And that it just happens in a faraway land. Is naive.
1: And I think, isn't it better that this guy has these images in his home in private? Isn't that better? That's naive. Yes. That's naive. Talk to the victim about that. Anybody, the victim's family. It's contraband. Does you using contraband in private impact the demand and supply of the contraband? Of course it does. As a society, how do we want to deal with that?
0: We need to start having conversations about
1: it. We need to talk about it openly. And then the people who handle them. This is first responders experience trauma from going onto a scene and seeing things firsthand. There's a car accident. Right what have you I worked homicide I was in the homicide bureau I don't have to go out to scenes I would see the dead bodies at the scene and I don't have a lot of dreams that I remember or nightmares but I remember I I had one about a dead body I saw how is this any different you talk about secondary trauma but isn't it really primary trauma firsthand yeah yeah, or Secondary trauma or vicarious trauma would be maybe hearing about it, but isn't seeing it primary trauma. And then the other thing we don't talk about also is in addition to the detectives handling these cases and the doctors who are looking at the images, if necessary, to provide age of the minor and the prosecutors who are looking at the images to charge them. What about the jurors who have to look at them in a trial? Are they prepared in any way? In the jury selection process, you try to, and you tell them, you're going to have to look at these. You're going to have to look at the images. And I know there's a lot of fight back on it because if you're a defense tree, you can understand how you don't want it seem like it's such a big deal because you're trying to defend your client. You're trying to minimize You're trying to what minim- it is. minimize it, and if you make a big deal out, of it, deal out of it, it minimizes it. I think from the beginning, it was at least in cases I've been involved in, because so like, I thought what? thought about that. The jury had been warned in jury selection, even back then. Right. Oh, because that's excellent. The reason why is because we warn jurors in a hands-on trial. You're going to see pictures in a hands-on trial. You would say you are going to hear about some things you don't talk about mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Right. And we're not saying it's going to be pleasant for you, but are you going to be able to sit here and hear it and put it in the context of this case and not just be so overwhelmed by what you hear that you're not going to be able to listen to anything else. And in these cases... How often did people raise their hand and say... A lot. A lot. When people get their juror summons in the mail, they don't expect to come show up to the courthouse and cry. They don't expect to come to the courthouse and have their own be re-triggered by concerning their own past. When people get the juror summons in the mail, their first thought is, oh, no, or something else. As to, I got jury duty and that sucks. How am I going to get out of this? <laughs> yes, right again. And then, they go, and then they go down to the courthouse and they're thinking they'll be there for a day. And they're thinking maybe some, whatever, DOI case. They're not whatever they're thinking that they may be a hold of. And they get into the courtroom and then they get told, ladies, and gentlemen, I'll tell you a little about this case involves 10 counts of sexual exploitation. That means visual depictions of children under the age of 15, either in a sexual exploitive pose or engaged in a sexual. And you'll have to see these images as part of this trial. Is there anyone because of your personal experience doesn't believe that you'd be able to assess this case solely and exclusively based upon the evidence presented because your personal experiences impact this. You'll get a lot of hands. And you'll tell people, show me your hand. Sometimes now it's done in in survey form, so you get that anonymously. Right. And then you talk to them individually. But when you tell jurors, we'll talk to you about it in private, which is what judges tell jurors. It's not in private. It's just because the prosecutor's still there. Maybe there's two prosecutors. The case agent is still there. Court staff. Maybe multiple defense attorneys. Maybe the defendant, court staff, etc. It's just the other jurors. And here you are. You're nervous about coming to a courtroom anyway. You're nervous about coming downtown or wherever you're going to court. You're nervous about jury duty in general. You're not... A big fan of public speaking. And now you got to tell these idiots in the courtroom why sitting on a child exploitation jury is bad. And a lot of people, before they even say anything, just start crying. And then judges, when I was a prosecutor or me as a judge now, just say, Thank you for your time. You, sir, thank you for your time. You just at it. What have we done to that person? re traumatized And then what do we do for that person afterwards? When you're thinking about this project, it is not just detectives that are harmed. There's a whole host of people that were harming in the process as well. When you think about getting back to something you said before about the detective being upset because they put all this effort into the case and the guy's only getting one year instead of a hundred years, yeah, you got to think about maybe who else are we saving? Who else are we not exposing to these images. I don't know. Should that impact plea agreements or not? I don't know. But it's something to think about. Just the mere
0: fact that we have to expose a whole host of people in a chain. It's not just the detective. It's not just the prosecutor. We have the detective, any support staff. You have civilian investigators, civilian assistants, doctors, forensic nurses, forensic pediatricians, prosecutors, your court clerks, The court staff, the prosecutors, paralegals, like everybody is exposed to this stuff. Right. And jury members, grand juries are exposed to it just to bring the indictment. They're just, we, just describing it to the grand jury. You and I have been at grand juries where we have upset people, physically upset them just reading
1: a description of the image. And what do we do for them? And the answer is nothing. So... Hopefully we recognize that. Yes. And I think any arguments on another side of this, which is, but by doing that, we're bringing to the attention that how bad these are. And therefore we're prejudicing the defendants and we can't get a fair trial, et cetera. We are ignoring the negative impact that we're doing. A lot of people. A lot of people. And we need to understand that. And I was not provided any resources. Myself personally. As a prosecutor as, and a judge. As a prosecutor handling it. I was not provided any resource. As a judge now, I've, I've attended some conferences where they talk about vicarious trauma and how to deal. Being educated about vicarious trauma and dealing with it is different. Right. And nothing, i at mean, that, nothing specific to these types of cases. Correct. Not only that, we didn't offer anything to my parallel support staff. Jurors, our in-house detectives that we had, nothing. I didn't offer it to my attorneys that I supervised or worked with or staff as well.
0: I didn't do that either. Why do you think that is? Do you think any part of it is, if you acknowledge it openly, then you're acknowledging it affects you as well, and is and the shame that comes with that?
1: No, I think part of it is culture, like naive, being naive. I think part of it is no one before me brought it up. Part of it is that's the way we've always done it. That's the way we've always done it. Part of it is this is your job, right? Do your job. If you can't do your job, tough. I'll, I'll give you a, an, a, an example of something about a, a conversation I had with a colleague of mine. Used to respect this colleague. I remember talking to the judge about judges and being a judge and handling cases about topics or issues that may impact you as a judge in your mental health. So I said to this person, let's say, hypothetically, you had a judge assigned to DUI court every day, DUI case, DUI case, DUI case. And then that person had a close friend or family member die or was seriously injured as a result of an impaired driver. Every day, every moment of the day, after work, whatever, everything that person reads has to deal with impaired drivers. So the person can't get away from from that. Now, if that person came to the presiding judge or whomever and said, listen, this happened to me. My best friend, my spouse, my child, my whatever, was just killed by an impaired driver. I can't handle these cases. It's impacting me. Can Can I please go to another assignment and then I need to deal with it and then after a period of time, you can send me back here. But right now, this give me a, a break
0: you. a short yeah you know,
1: this is good for me the response i got was that no we would expect that judicial officer to just recuse him or herself on cases that impacted them i said every case recuse means that you say as a judge i can't handle this case so they're supposed to do that on every case yeah How- that's impossible and then imagine a judge handling I don't know, family court cases, divorce cases, and then that judge themselves is going through a divorce. And now every day you're hearing stories. And how can that not have an impact on that judge's mental? And I'm not saying the judge isn't doing his or her job. The judge is probably doing the job and making good decisions and doing all of that. But that doesn't mean that the judge side of being in the courtroom
0: is mentally healthy. And it doesn't mean they're not suffering.
1: It doesn't mean they're not suffering. And when that was addressed, it was do the job or quit. That's a recent attitude that I know of. That still happens today. That's sad. And so part of it is do your job or that's sells. Now a lot of lip service may be given to it. And That's another thing that I think is shameful is the people who give lip service to this but then it maybe at meetings, seminars or conferences or whatever, but in practice, do diddly squat about it. And that is garbage. And we need to make that change now. And if if a detective comes to someone, a, a leader, and says, this is impacting me, number one, an environment should be created where they can do that. And they know that doing that is not going to impact their job their title their pay their placement their status etc it's going to provide them with services or help right if you were a detective and you were investigating a case and you were interrogating someone and you say no i've come at this person i've tried this skill i've tried that skill i know there's a way to get this person i just can't do it what do you suggest the, res- the feedback on that scenario wouldn't be suck it up. Go back in there and do your investigation. It would be try this, try that. Mind a fight. And no one would think twice about that detective. No one would think less of that person. No one would think anything. And then that person would go in and got help. It. Thanks. Great job. I didn't think of it. Yep. Or whatever. No one would think twice about. It. How is this any different? It's not. It's not.
0: Why are we treating it like that? Because nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants to believe. I'm sorry, I'm using it, absolute terms. I believe that, that the community, they want to believe it's the innocent bathtub photos. It's the 17 year are they legal, are they not? And you hear those things like, oh, he would never do something like that. He's the nicest guy. Society does not want to have the conversation to get to the root of this problem because it's
1: easier to just pretend it's not happening. In general, our society doesn't want to have the conversation when it comes to anything dealing with paraphilias or sexual issues. Correct. I remember as a sex crimes prosecutor going to my kids' Little League games, and there's other parents there and they're talking about their days and whatever. And I couldn't. Because so what am I going to say? Anytime if I were to say something it ends the conversation and then people walk away from me. Yeah. Right. And then a topic came up about a coach, literally coach got accused of a sex crime and people were crazy. So people knew what I did. So everyone was talking to me and they sex crime with a child. Sex crime with a child. That's correct. I'm sorry. And so me and uh, a friend of mine who actually happened to be Be a police officer, took over the, the team, and everyone's freaking out. And me and a person, my friend, who also worked in law enforcement, were saying, imagine, going through, it's a shocking. Whereas for me, and for friend was, all right, this happened.
0: Yeah, desensitized.
1: Imagine going through life where you don't have any contact or knowledge that there's trauma or sexual exploitation.
0: Occurring. Yeah.
1: Occurring, period. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, it would be great. Ignorance. Right. Ignorance is bliss. Because they can live their their life and be happy and talk at the soccer game on the field and have conversations about their work, their life, whatever. And it doesn't matter.
0: And it's not confronting. It's it's not a confronting it's, it's not conversation.
1: Confronting. I've had this tough sales call to yeah. day or. Yeah, you just, you vent to each other. Okay, cool. And you can relate. They they can relate with you. What happened to you? I had this rapist on the stand, and when I was... Yeah. Oh, I watched the video
0: of this four-year-old.
1: Exactly. You you can't. You cannot. So then, not only do you deal with it internally, now you're becoming isolated from your friends. not saying peers, but friends. Because you can't talk. Right. Because who wants to hear it? So... That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. You have to
0: be willing to have a difficult conversation. We have to be willing to have the conversation. If we care enough about it, if we care enough about our children, our communities, the people that we know and love, we have to have difficult conversations. That's what we do. That's what grownups do.
1: I remember a situation where a lot of people, when they have kids, when it comes to genitalia, they use weird names. I, I did. I did. And so we made the decision, Max's wife, and to teach the kids proper names, obviously not rude names, but proper. And I remember my daughter went down like a, one of those slides, like water, inflatable slides. Yeah. And she got up at a wedgie and she gets off the slide and it's my vagina. Yeah. And people were, mortified really mortified staring at us like we're horrible people what are you teaching your daughter because she used a word that is the proper word how old
0: was she at the time
1: roughly i don't know probably under five wow five or under maybe yeah six or under preschool age. so we don't want to talk about that no normal stuff yeah let alone this stuff and I think if we bury our hands and heads in the sand and play ostrich, we think it'll go away. No one thinks about, and I know this isn't what this necessary podcast is about, no, go ahead. but no one thinks about the jurors that we expose to this stuff. Yeah. We are effing up these regular, innocent people who have nothing to do with this world and have never had anything to do with this world. And we're forcing them, compelling them to participate in and be exposed to it. Can you imagine that? You as a detective at least had a
0: choice. If you were at work, if you were at work and a colleague of yours sat you down and said, watch this video and you watched it and it was child expo- it was a child being raped, right? How would you react to that? What would you do? Would you tell anybody that happened? Of course you right. would be. But that's exactly what's happening. We're sitting them right. down and we're saying, you have to look at this. And then the, out, out they go. And they have to deal with it. Right. Slap them in the face with it. We just slap them in the face. As a
1: prosecutor, you think, can I get away with doing this trial and just having a description of the images and not showing it to them, admitting them so the jurors have it if they want to listen to it, or me watch it, the video or picture or whatever, am I going to get a conviction? Here's the problem with being a prosecutor. That's a gamble, right? Yeah. Because you don't know if the jurors are going to look at it or not in the deliberation room. And if they're just going to base their decision on the description, number one, is that going to get a conviction? Because what if they say the tetra just didn't describe it enough? I don't know. It didn't sound, yeah. I don't know if it meets the language that's in the jury instructions or not. If that's the case, then the guy gets acquitted, not guilty verdict. And because of double jeopardy, you're never getting that person again on those images and those facts. And that person goes free. Prosecutors want to risk that. It's a big risk. I'll show it to the jury, but we'll just like flash them on the screen. That happened that time. That doesn't happen. That was at the beginning stages where people were, I think, uneducated and didn't understand. And people didn't have computers at their desks.
0: Are jurors now offered resources, mental health resources? Is that that part of the culture, or is it still something that's not
1: openly discussed from a judge's perspective, from a- I believe something may be available, and I believe we offer something to some jurors. I think the focus of that, I could be wrong, but I believe the focus of that is like lengthy, capital cases, death penalty cases. Right. And like, rather than uh, a few-day sexual exploitation of a minor.
0: So more of, a, more of you're going to, like the more you're inconvenienced, the more we're going to, because you're going to be away from your family, you're going to be sequestered nature. potentially.
1: It's also nature. Typically there's no sequestering, but there's also, it's also a nature of it. And I think capital cases yeah. are the worst. And I'm not saying capital cases are bad. And I'm not saying homicide is okay. But I think a person can go through a homicide tra- and then go live their life trauma free after that. I'm not sure a person can go through a sexual exploitation of a minor trial and live their life the same way after that.
0: So, now
1: what resources do you have
0: available as a judge for mental health? Do you have resources available connected to your employment, knowing what you're, sure. knowing your exposure to
1: not just this, but to. There's been things started and stopped lip service given to things there's informal mentoring and or talking about stuff with a colleague informal yes through the county and or state insurance system depending upon you have the eap employee Employee assistance program where you can get 12 free sessions in a calendar year once a month or 12 consecutive weeks and then you're done. Yes. Or 12 consecutive days and then you're done. Yes. Or you use your health insurance yourself to go find a provider for yourself.
0: So once again, you're in a position where whether you're a judge, a juror, a detective, a, a forensic pediatrician, you have to go seek out the help. You have to go ask. The, when the cabin depressurizes, you have to go ask the flight attendant for the mask.
1: Because I'm not to say that the bench isn't good. The bench is good. Maricopa County is often recognized as a leader in terms of being progressive. I'm not talking politically progressive. I'm talking about progressive in terms of programs yes. for help. Yes. And it has been. And it's done wonderful things. And when there's a significant and obvious trauma, such as, I don't know, a high profile case, and maybe there is a murder suicide in one of your family court cases, there'll be people that will reach out to you and offer services, et cetera. But not just because you did a sexual exploitation of a minor trial. Yes. The average run of the mill stuff, so to speak for us, average run of the mill for,
0: but, but then again, how many people know you're doing sexual exploitation of a minor cases or trials or what? How many people are you telling that? Because again, it gets back to the,
1: you can't discuss it with anybody. I remember when I was on the criminal bench and we rotate to different assignments every few years, I was on the criminal bench and on the criminal bench in Maricopa County, you get assigned cases to try all cases that are ready to go for trial on a particular day, go to one place in front of one judge and the judge says, okay, you're ready for trial, 10 day trial. All right. Judge Ostrowski is available. There you go. The person doing that knew me and knew my background I was getting cesscrown trials back to back to back to back and after doing I think about five in a row with no breaks literally going from picking a jury while we still have another jury deliberating no breaks when we got to the fifth one my staff came to me and I should have been better about this myself my staff came to me and said judge no more we get a break because they have to be there and they have to hear the evidence. And they don't have your background. And they don't have my background and they don't have my training and they don't have my knowledge or, and your prior exposure. And they don't have my prior exposure or, or experience. They're just a person that's has a legal secretary job in, in, in essence. And that's interesting as well, because what do we do for them?
0: Thank you for listening to Justice Under Question Part 2 with the Honorable Brad Ostrowski. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you got as much out of it as I did interviewing him. Judge Ostrowski has agreed to let me interview him at least one more time for this podcast. So if you have any questions that you would like to submit that you want me to ask a judge from their perspective about this type of crime or anything that you think is related to this, shoot me an email at harmlessthepodcast at gmail.com and I will see if we can ask Judge Ostrowski. Thank you again for listening to Harmless the Podcast. And as always, if you know somebody that you feel needs to listen to this podcast so they know they're not alone, please do not hesitate to send it to them. And if you need it sent to them anonymously, email me at harmlessthepodcast at gmail.com and I will make sure they listen to the podcast. Your actions just may save someone's life. Thank you.